Well, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 6, and while you turn there, I'll just give a couple quick announcements and updates. Uh, First of all, uh, a need for us at at our church right now is for people who will help out and teach kids' classes. Um, We've got uh, kids' classes going on in the back every week, and they're excellent classes where there's a gospel-centered curriculum teaching kids uh, the message of Christ, the message of the cross, through all the stories of the Bible. Uh, The curriculum is excellent, and it's given to you so so that there is some prep time required, but not a ton. But what we're praying for are couples who will take kids' classes and adopt them as their own, who, who will say every week, I could teach the toddlers, or I could teach the big kids, or I could work in nursery. And failing that, even people who will rotate through uh, one out of every four weeks or so to come and, and teach those classes, we could definitely use help in, in all kinds of areas back there. So if you've been kind of waiting to, to jump in and serve, that's a great place to serve. The people to talk to about that would be Andrea Pitcher, who signs everybody in at the back kids' table, back where it's cold, and she's putting her coat on right now, and, uh, or Michael Barone, who is in the side of the room over here. We would love to plug you in and, and have a, a new group of teachers come January, February, and uh, we're really thankful for the teachers we have and for the, the high quality of those kids' classes back there. I know my kids are benefiting from them, and so we would encourage you to jump in there. Uh, Secondly, I want to tell you about Christmas Eve. Uh, Christmas Eve is coming, and uh, the way we're doing it as a church this year is we're going to be doing Christmas Eve services two nights in a row. Uh, The first one will be on December 23rd, and that will be at our east location, which is 359 West Bloomfield in Pittsford at 6 p.m., um, that night, it'll, we'll start at 6 o'clock, we'll get come together, we'll sing traditional Christmas songs, worshiping, we'll light candles, uh, we'll have a gospel-centered message, and just a, a beautiful night together, building memories and proclaiming the gospel so that we might believe it more and so our family and friends can believe it. And so we'd encourage you to come out on December 23rd to our first Christmas Eve service, um, or on December 24th, we'll be having our Christmas Eve services here. Uh, the invitation says that the start time in those is 6 o'clock, but we have bumped that to 6.15. And the reason for that is that St. Boniface Church across the street has said that after 6.15, we can use their parking lot. And um, you know how parking is around here, especially when we're crowded and full. And so if we come at 6.15, park over there, we'll do a real start time at 6.20. We'll start the timer for five minutes at 6.15. Um, so, so that's the plan for that Christmas Eve. Now, if you look at those two and you say, we could either do the 23rd with our family or the 24th, and you could choose between those two, It would help us a ton if somewhere around 25 people decided to go to our East location for Christmas Eve. And the reason for that is that when we were first planning the Christmas Eve services, our church was a lot smaller, and we we underestimated how much we would grow this fall. And so if everybody from both the 9 a.m. and the 11 a.m. service show up and bring friends on Christmas Eve... We're not fitting. And so um, we want you to come, though, uh, out at the East location, which is our new location, somewhere around 15 weeks old. We usually fill half the space. So we've got room, uh, even if 70 or 80 extra people came, we've got the space out there. So if you wanted to come out on the 23rd, uh, that would help too. But either way, the 23rd or 24th, we'd love to have you come out and worship with us. Uh, Bring your family, and it's going to be a good night. Uh, one last announcement before we jump in. Today, at the end of service, we will be baptizing someone who's put his faith in Christ, which is always a great celebration of the new life we have in Christ and the way that he steps into our lives and changes us and saves us. And we do want to open that up to anybody else. If anybody is interested in being baptized today, you've put your faith in Christ and have not yet been baptized, we're happy to do that even this morning. Um, just to make sure that you can do that, Michael Barone is standing in the back. Feel free to get up at any time, either during the sermon or during the next few songs, and talk to Michael. We'd, it's, it's open to anyone. So, so if you've put your faith in Christ and you'd like to publicly announce that by being baptized, we'd be happy to, happy to do that. Um, 
But today we're going to be talking uh, through the story of, uh, of a man whose life didn't really go the way that the other stories we've told in this Advent season have gone. Uh, we, we've gone through in this Advent season, week after week, talking about some of the lives in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus transformed. And the way these lives have gone has always been pretty happy so far. You know, we've talked about Legion, who was the man that was possessed by a legion of demons, who lived among the tombs, naked and howling and shrieking and cutting himself. And Jesus stepped into his life, his life was transformed, and the town that he haunted was transformed because Jesus entered that life. Then we told the story of Jairus, the man whose daughter had died, and Jesus stepped into that life and raised her from the dead. So that instead of all the sorrow, he brought joy, he brought rejoicing, and transformed that whole family. Uh, There was also the story of the woman who was sick and ill. She had this issue of blood for 12 years, and Jesus stepped into her life, and she was completely transformed. She was changed, uh, she was healed, she was taken from what people would have called unclean and made clean. So we tell these stories, and they're great stories, they're true stories. God does work in ways like we've said that he works in these stories, where he takes unclean people and makes them clean. He takes people who are unacceptable, and he makes them accepted and loved. And as we tell these stories at Christmas time, it's not just us as Christians telling them, but other people are telling the stories of redemption and lives changed. You you know, you see it in our books and in the stories that we tell around this time, the movies that we see. You know, in in A Christmas Carol, you see Ebenezer Scrooge go from bah humbug to Merry Christmas, where his life is transformed, and he he is this angry man who's made sweet. Uh, You see where Ralphie finally gets the BB gun and um, doesn't quite shoot his eye out, but that desire is fulfilled. The one thing that he wants all comes to fulfillment on Christmas Day. Rudolph's friends um, no longer laugh and call him names. Their hearts are softened and changed. And then in, in the ultimate Christmas classic, uh, Buddy the Elf's dad uh, has his, his whole life changed, where previously he loved money and success more than his family, and everything turns around, and by Christmas Day, he's willing to sacrifice his job to love his family, and in the end, Buddy gets married, and, and everything's good. And these are our Christmas stories. Our Christmas stories start with conflict, but then by Christmas morning, they resolve with the whole family gathered around, dad's carving the Christmas goose. I don't know who eats a Christmas goose, but they're doing that and celebrating the fact that everything that they wanted has finally come to pass. All those desires were fulfilled. Uh, hard hearts were made soft, and coldness was made warm. And, and these are the stories with the happy resolutions that we tell, and we know that stories should go that way. We should have our desires fulfilled. We should have our hearts softened. Our doubts and our fears should go away. That's the way things should go, but pretty often that's not how our lives go. And, and we love to tell those stories from the Bible because they are true stories, and God does make a change like that in people's lives. But there are also stories that don't go that way. And, and we try not to tell those too often, and, and the holidays can tend to amplify for us our sense that our story's not going the way that we think that it should. You know, last year we thought that maybe next year at Christmas I won't be sick anymore, and we're still sick. Our family's still broken. We're still lonely. We're still broke. We thought that everything would go better this year, and it didn't go better. Things haven't changed, and we feel this sense of lack and emptiness and brokenness, and it just gets amplified because we watch the movies, we listen to the stories, and we say, why am I not getting my Christmas goose? Why, why is my resolution not coming? Why on December 25th am I waking up and not having that kind of fulfillment and happiness? You know, we saw the story in the news on Friday, 26 families that were expecting a happy Christmas morning. 
We're expecting resolution, and now 26 families in Connecticut are going to be having a painful day that gets amplified by what Christmas was supposed to be. And so we look at those stories, and, and today we're going to tell the story of someone whose life goes more that way, whose life doesn't go the way you would want it to go toward that great resolution on Christmas morning, but takes some dark and unexpected turns. But at the end of all this, there is peace and there is hope. So it's going to be dark for a while, but stick with me, because I just want to make sure that as a church, we're painting accurate pictures, where we're saying that Jesus does come into lives and change them for the better, but sometimes Jesus comes into a life, and because he comes into a life, life can get dark there can be doubt, there can be despair, things can go in a direction we never would have thought a life should go if Jesus was over it, but that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't reign. It doesn't mean that he hasn't saved us and redeemed us. It doesn't mean he doesn't live inside of us. It doesn't mean that he's not our king. It means that he's sovereign and his ways are higher than our ways and he knows better than we do the way things should go. And so so the person whose story we're going to tell today is John the Baptist. Uh, We first met John early on in the Gospel of Mark, and remember, he was the one that God had sent to prepare the way for the Lord. He went out, and the Gospel of John says that he shouted, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he baptized Jesus, and all of the the people from Judea were going out to him in the wilderness and being baptized. They were repenting. They were turning to God. He was getting the nation ready for the coming of Christ, but people really didn't know what to make of him. Yeah, on the one hand, he was leading people to repentance, and his followers seemed more zealous for righteousness. They wanted to follow God, it seemed. Their lives were cleaning up. Families were changing. So that was all good. But then on the other hand, he was wearing camel hair and eating locusts, and he, he just wasn't the, the stereotype of a dignified preacher. Um, so, so they didn't know what to make, with him, make of him, but this is what Jesus said. In Matthew 11, verse 7, he says, "'What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind?' What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus says that John the Baptist is indeed great. In fact, after Jesus, there was nobody who was ever born who was greater than John the Baptist. And so that's the final word. This is a great guy. This is a guy who God is using as part of his plan. He has an important role in the history that God's about to play out with the entire world. He had been prophesied about hundreds of years earlier that this voice of one would come crying out and preparing the way for the Lord. He was a solid Christian guy. He was the captain of the Jesus team. And so you would expect that things would go well for him. You would expect that because Jesus was king, Jesus would come and take his throne, and then when he took his throne, John the Baptist gets a cushy government job with retirement and dental and status. But that's not how his life goes. His life takes some turns. Even though he was a follower of Christ, even though he was zealous, his life took turns into some dark places. Mark chapter 6, verse 17, this is where it went for him. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John was a guy who was faithful to God. He was a faithful messenger. And so he would speak the truth even to powerful people. 
Uh, this King Herod was not the same Herod who was king when Jesus was born. That was Herod the Great, and remember, he died, and then his son, this Herod, took over. This is Herod Antipas, and he was known as a tyrant. He was known as a really insecure guy, um, and he, his role was basically to be the king under Caesar of the Jewish people. So in one sense, he was kind of the king of the Jews. But when they looked at him, they saw that he was not living like a good person. He, he was not following the commands of God at all. He, even though he was married, he started spending time with his brother Philip and his brother Philip's wife, and then he took his brother Philip's wife and married her. So he didn't care about his brother, married his brother's wife anyway, and he also didn't care about the fact that his brother Philip's wife was his niece. So Herod had issues, and John was a guy who wasn't afraid to call him out on it. You know, John had confidence that God was going to be doing something big with him, probably had a little bit of a sense of invincibility. He was the one who was calling people to repent. He was preparing the way for the Lord. So there had to be a bright future for him. So he would stand out and call him out and say, listen, Herod, you, you do not go to family reunions to pick up women. Um, there are <laughs> rules against that kind of thing. This is not Arkansas. I don't know what you're thinking. You need to turn from all that. And that, that took some guts. It took some guts to say those things. But he figured he had a future. He figured he knew where things were going. He, he knew that God was going to come and make him great someday. And so he was able to say these things, even though to say those things about a leader in their day could make some people very unhappy. So he said it, and, and Herod heard it, and it really upset Herod's wife. This was actually a really good arrangement for her. She was married to this guy who was wealthy, this guy who had status. Uh, he loved building projects. He was actually building a huge city up along the shore where there was a vacation house where they would go and retreat to that place. So this marriage was working out pretty well for this lady. And so when she hears John the Baptist saying, this marriage is illegal, this marriage is wrong, you shouldn't be doing this, she holds a serious grudge against him. Verse 19, it says, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod was a little bit torn. On the one hand, he genuinely liked John. He liked to listen to him preach. He thought that he was a holy man, and he wanted to be on God's side, so he didn't mess with John. But then on the other side of things, his wife was saying, that guy has to go. He's terrible. You have to put him to death. Then on the other side of things, there's this population that loved John the Baptist. And Matthew says that the reason that Herod didn't have him put to death is because of the people, because they loved him so much that if Herod were to have him executed, that would just throw fuel on, on some fire that was already burning between Herod and the people that he was reigning over. So he had him imprisoned. And so John goes to jail, and that is not the way things were supposed to go. He was supposed to be free. He was supposed to be able to preach. He was supposed to be on Jesus' team and blessed by Jesus but that's not the way that things happened. He was imprisoned, and, and their jails, even, even their best jails, made our worst jails look like hotels, where if, if you were to survive in jail, it was only because some family members or friends or people who just loved people in jail would come and bring you food. You had to be fed by other people on the outside, and they were, were disgusting. You were hungry, and so things would get pretty dark for you if you were in prison, and that's where John was. He was expecting things to go well for the king and Jesus to come and upset everything and change everything and fix everything, but that's not the way it went, it seemed. He's in jail, and then in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, he calls for Jesus, and he says this. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So here's this guy, John, great hero of the faith, preaches Jesus, announces who he is, goes to jail. He's there for a while. Things get dark. He gets depressed. He gets frustrated with what God's doing in his life. It's not going the way he expected it to. And so he sends some messengers and he says, go to Jesus and tell him, I want to know if he's really the one. I want to know if, the, if he's this king of kings and lord of lords. I want to know if he's the one who's going to come and save his people, because supposedly I was one of his people and doesn't look like I'm saved. I'm in jail. I'm stuck here. I'm dying here. So send to Jesus and ask him, am I supposed to be waiting for somebody else to come? Now, if we're honest, sometimes this can be the type of frustration we have, even the frustration we have with what God's doing with our lives during this season. You look at Christmas and you said, man, maybe this will finally be the Christmas that I spend with the person that I'm going to marry. And last year you looked ahead and said, said this will be my last year being lonely and still you feel like you're going to be lonely on Christmas. You said, maybe this will be the year that my illness finally goes away and my weakness goes away and finally I'll be made whole, but you're still sick. Maybe this will be the year that I finally have job security and I can sit there at Christmas and feel like I'm providing for my family and giving good gifts to my kids and you're still broke and you still don't know where the job's going. Maybe this will be the Christmas when, when your kids return to Christ and start walking with Jesus again, but they're still wandering. Maybe this will be the Christmas where that big desire we have is fulfilled, but it's still left unfulfilled and you still feel empty. Well, if John, who was a much greater Christian than we are, could legitimately send to Jesus and say, hey, are you the one to come or should we look for another? It's reasonable to expect that in a good and even in a great Christian life, there will be seasons of doubt, seasons of despair, and seasons of frustration with what God's doing with our lives. And that doesn't mean that he's not doing something with them. You know, I, I wish we could get up and say everybody's Christmas story is going to be the same and whatever happens in these next 10 days, by Christmas morning, it's going to be nothing but God bless us, everyone. But sometimes that's not the way it goes. That's not the way that Jesus transforms our lives. And, and we can look at all this and say, man, all these people are getting their desires fulfilled. They're all getting their Christmas goose. Everything's going well for them. Why am I not getting mine? You know, what's wrong with me? Where's my fulfillment? Where, where's my happy Christmas morning? Where's my spouse? Where's my family? I wanted all those things. Doesn't Christianity guarantee that I'll get those things? Well, some might make that promise to you, but that promise isn't a promise that's necessarily made by God. Now, there is a promise, and we'll get to that, but the idea that our lives are going to resolve and everything's going to be wonderful because we're walking with Jesus just isn't one that you'll find in the Bible. In fact, listen to Jesus' response. John sends to him and says, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And Jesus says this, Matthew eleven four, And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus says, go tell John this. Tell him everything I'm doing. Tell him about the blind people who now have sight. Tell them about the dead people who've been raised. Tell them about the miracles that I'm doing. Because all of those things had been predicted. God had said that when the one, when the Messiah, the one that all of us are waiting for, when he comes, he'll come and heal the blind. He'll come and, and do miracles. These things will happen. And so Jesus says, go tell John, I'm doing all those things. 
But Jesus here is quoting from a passage that had predicted his coming in Isaiah 61. And this is what that passage says. It says, Isaiah 61:1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. But notice when Jesus quotes it, he says, the poor have the good news preached to him. I'm proclaiming liberty, but he doesn't quote to him the part about the opening of the prison. So it seems like his message to John is, you better believe that I'm the one. Yes, I'm the one who was to come. Look at all these miracles. I've done everything the Messiah was supposed to do to prove that I am who I I say I am, but you're not getting out of jail. Now, that's not the message you want to receive when you're in jail. I'm sure John's listening as these messengers are reading what Jesus said, and they say, yeah, this this is what he said. He said, the the poor have the good news preached to him. The dead are raised. And John immediately is thinking of Isaiah 61, and he's thinking, yes, and, and, and the captives get out of prison. And he says, no, no, he didn't say anything about that. Oh, because I'm the one who's, who's in prison. So if we believe this story, there must be in our minds a category for, for a person who is a child of God, who's 100% in the center of God's will, who God has a wonderful plan for their life, life but it doesn't go the way they expect it to go. Because that's where John was. And remember, he was a greater Christian than we are. Now, you'd expect that that now finally the resolution comes. Jesus sends word to John. John's heart is reassured. He's got peace. He's got tranquility again. And then suddenly there's an earthquake, and John breaks out of prison, and he runs down the street. God bless us, everyone. Merry Christmas to everybody. Everything's happy. But that's not the way it goes. Mark 6, 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday gave a great banquet for all his nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. So he has a birthday party for himself, which is vain. And so he does this, and it says, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So now the daughter of Herod's wife comes in and dances. So apparently here we have the second family member that Herod is attracted to. Um, he's, he's got some serious problems. And in all of his wisdom, apparently he's drunk and he says, hey, I like that dance so much, whatever you want, I'll give it to you, up to half my kingdom. So, so he makes this generous promise, and then verse 24, it says, she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist... And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So God has this wonderful plan for John's life. John's this man of God, and he ends up beheaded because a drunk king is attracted to his step-great-niece daughter, or whatever she's called. That seems like a pretty meaningless end. 
I mean, this is the guy who's here to prepare the way for the Lord, and his end is, is this weird, sick dance thing and a beheading in prison, and he never gets out. There couldn't be a more senseless and meaningless death than this one. This is why in a passage we didn't read early on in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus was doing his miracles, one of the explanations that people were giving was that Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead because there's no way John's life could have ended there. There has to be more to that story. There has to be a better resolution than that. So maybe Jesus is the one who is, is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Well, if you could turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Like I said, this is some hard stuff, because I think that within evangelical Christianity today, there is a tendency to promise people some things that God hasn't promised them. Um, we, we make promises sometimes because we're deceived ourselves and we really believe them, or because we're deceivers, where we want to sell books or create positive energy or pack seats in our churches, and, and we want to make these promises that life will go well for you if you follow Jesus. Life will go the way you want it to. Life will resolve the way you want it to. The, the, the path that you can be on is an expected path of health and wealth and prosperity. But what I see in Scripture is that God does that for people. Some people he makes healthy and wealthy and prosperous, but he doesn't do that for other people. What I see is that God will get his glory God will one day make all things new, and God will, in the end, work all things together for good for every single one of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. But the road that he has us on between here and there often doesn't go the way we think that it should. Sometimes it does, and we're just those people who seem like we're always blessed and things always break our way because God has that in for us. But sometimes we're more like John the Baptist in jail. And we're saying, Jesus, really, you're king? You're ruling over this chaos because I don't see where this whole thing is going. I don't, I don't see what you're doing. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is um, sometimes called the Faith Hall of Fame because it lays out the tremendous ways that God uses people when they're people of faith. And some of the first ones, we love to tell these stories. Hebrews 11.30, it says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So God takes Joshua and he marches out around the city. They blow their ram's horns. The walls come down and they conquer this huge city that they never should have conquered because they had faith and because God blessed them. Awesome. That's the way things go. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. So this is what God does for his people of faith. This is what he does for his children. God has designed that shepherd boys could one day grow up to slay giants by his power. He's designed that there is a path of prosperity that he puts many of his people on, and sometimes these typical Christmas stories do happen. And we'd like to stop reading there, but he continues the list. Remember, this is all one list. These are all the people of faith. These are all people who are 100% right in the center of God's will. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. 
They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So in the same list of faithful people, we have heroes of the faith that have this massive triumph in their lives, but then we also have in that same list people who are mocked and tortured and killed with rocks or swords or saws, and they die, and they never get that Christmas goose resolution. The point of this passage is that the way that the life of faith can go can be through miracles and triumph, or it can go through poverty, torture, mocking, and death, And all of these people are the heroes of the faith. All of these people are God's kids, and and God is doing something in all their lives. But here's what we tend to say in our books today. We tend to say, look at these miracles that these first guys did. Look at these people who stopped the mouths of lions. So I'm going to write a book that says that the difference between someone who stops the mouths of lions and someone who gets eaten by by lions is just technique. You just have to learn to do things the right way, and then you'll be the one who stops the mouths of lions. Or or the difference between the people who march around the city and have the walls come tumbling down and the people who lose in battle is that they need a different technique. They need a different kind of faith. And so we write those books and say, believe this, buy this book, because you can be in category A, the people who triumph. You don't have to be in category B, these people who are tortured and mocked and failed, because a life of faith is a life of triumph. But that's not what's always taught. Nobody writes a book and says, God's will for you may be that you're poor and destitute, wearing sheepskins and goatskins, living up in the mountains, and then maybe you get tortured and die. Nobody would say that, but if we look at an accurate picture in the Scripture, it says that that is the way that things go. You know, according to this passage, the poor and the destitute and those who are sawn in half are right in the center of God's will, and they're blessed. That's not health, wealth, and prosperity. I mean, being sawn in half is not the way to good health. Um, like, that, that's not a healthy lifestyle. But they, they go through that. They don't have it. They don't have those things that they want. They don't have the promises fulfilled. And the difference between category A and category B, what puts you in one category and the other category, is God's design, not our technique. Now, that's hard to hear, but it can also be encouraging, because I know at Christmas time there are probably more of us than not that feel like we're not on a mountaintop. We feel like we're going through a valley. We're going through dark times. We don't have that fulfillment. Life isn't where we would expect it to be if God was blessing us. But the hope of this passage is that a valley doesn't mean that we've taken a wrong turn. A valley doesn't mean that we've sinned somehow. What can happen is that we can feel so guilty when life isn't going the way we think it should and compound the problem by lading, uh, saddling ourselves with all kinds of guilt that doesn't need to be there because life always goes well if you're in the center of God's will. I must have turned out of God's will and that's why things are going badly. But that's not at all what Scripture says. So, so what do we do with this? Number one, as Christians, we don't need to feel that same pressure to wear a mask and a cape and pretend that we're not frustrated with the way life is going. Now, I don't think we should be incessant complainers, but I do think there's a, a temptation to think, well, every good Christian has things go their way because they're walking with Jesus. And so if I tell someone that I don't think things are going my way right now, I might look like a pretty bad Christian. I might not look like I'm in the center of God's will. Maybe I'm just like a junior varsity Christian. I must have sinned sometime in the past or made bad decisions, and I don't want to let on. So I'm going to pretend that there are no frustrations and things are going exactly the way that I would expect it to. We don't have to do that. 
Because John, in prison, he just sends to Jesus and says, Jesus, come on, are, are you the one to come or should I look for another? So he's frustrated, he's doubting, but he does the right thing with it. He calls to Jesus. Secondly, we should be prepared to suffer. We should be prepared for some hard times that come into our lives because hard times do come into the lives of faithful Christians. And maybe we'll be some of those few who are spared from them. And maybe we'll be the people who die at 90 years old with healthy and godly family all around us, unified family, Christmas goose. Maybe that's the way it goes for us. But more often than not, that's not the way it goes. So let's prepare ourselves and understand we're going to walk through that and not allow ourselves to feel unnecessarily guilty because of the hard times that we go through. But as we prepare ourselves, let's make sure that we prepare in the right way. And sometimes when we know we're going to go through hard times, what we'll do is we'll put up walls. And we'll say, you know, people will betray you. People will treat you badly. Life will go badly. So we decide, I'm never going to allow myself to get hurt. I'm never going to get close to anybody. I'm never going to, to love somebody. I'm never going to take a risk on anybody. I'm never going to chase a dream. I'm never going to do any of those things because I know that disappointment comes and I don't want to be disappointed. So I'm going to put up those walls and not feel anything. You know, I know this is my tendency. When we went in to, to plant the church at all the church planting conferences, they, they get up and they just tell you how bad it's going to be. Um, this is going to be terrible. Everyone's going to stab you in the back. You're going to be betrayed. Things won't go well. You're going to be broke. You're going to be hungry. Just the, throwing all these, these, maybe these things will go this way at you to prepare us. And my tendency then is to just put up walls and say, well, I won't take a risk on anybody then. Wouldn't want to like publicly honor anyone because there might be something dishonorable I don't know about. You know, I, I wouldn't want to spend any money because one of these days that bottom's going to drop out and I'm never going to get hurt. I'm going to put up those walls and I'm going to protect myself. But that's not the way that we protect ourselves. I mean, John was a guy who was passionate. He, he was out there putting it all on the line. And when things got dark, when he was in prison, he did exactly what we're supposed to do and he called out to Jesus. And the promise for us is that, yeah, we're going to go through some difficult times, but in any of those difficult times we go through, when we're in the dark prison, we can call out to Jesus. He'll be enough for us. He'll be there for us. He, he is satisfying. He does answer, and he doesn't answer in the way we think he should. He doesn't make life go the way we think it should, but he's there. He listens, and we can cry to him. So the way we prepare is by saying, I'll go through it, and when I do, Jesus will be enough. It's not by putting up the walls and saying, I'm just not even going to feel it because then we never love. C.S. Lewis said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So as Christians, we should be people who love deeply, not because it's always going to pay off, but because Jesus will always be enough. Jesus will be enough for us even in the darkness. So we need to make sure that, that we, we put it on the line and prepare ourselves to suffer and suffer the right way. But also in all this, we need to look to our future joy. Listen to Hebrews 12, coming right after that list of that faith hall of fame. He says, Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
So he says there's this great cloud of witnesses, all the people that he just talked about, this great group of people who have walked through life and been tortured and sawn in two, but Jesus was enough for them. So he says, therefore, since people have walked there before and Jesus has been enough for them, we should throw off everything that hinders. We should run hard. We should prepare to persevere because he'll be enough for us too. Look to those people who've gone before and he's been enough in their darkest hour. And so if we have a darkest hour in front of us, we know that he'll be there for us. So he says we should look to them. And then he says, verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he says, not only do we have all these people who've gone before, but we have Jesus And Jesus suffered. And when he was on the cross, he really suffered. He wasn't immune from it. He wasn't just some phantom dying up there, not feeling it. He felt it. He had his father turn his back on him. He was betrayed. He suffered and he died. And he did it because there was joy that was set before him. What we need to do when we go through those dark seasons and we don't have that resolution by Christmas morning is lift our eyes to a higher horizon where there is joy. That, That things have not been fixed yet. And when Jesus came, and when he came on that Christmas morning, he he began to unravel sin and death and sorrow. But it hasn't been fully unraveled yet. Things are still a mess. And so if Christmas morning is a dark time for you, don't feel like you're always going to be stuck there because the truth is you're not. There's no guarantee that in this life, the situation will resolve. But there is a guarantee that there's joy set before you. That way off on the far horizon, Jesus is coming back to make everything new. He is coming back to fix everything. There is a resurrection coming. When Jesus rose from the dead, the Bible says he was like the first fruits of all those who would rise from the dead. He was the first one to show us that death has been conquered and he came back to life. And we we don't see a whole lot of that where people rise from the dead. But one day when he returns, all of those who know him and love him will rise from the dead. There's a resurrection coming for all of us. There is hope off in the future. And we don't have an explanation for all the suffering that goes on. But what we have is a promise of resolution someday in the future. Jesus will make all things new eventually. Maybe not by Christmas morning, but it's coming. We don't have answers for everything, but we do have a Savior. And when we look at the events of this last Friday, uh, there's really no good explanation that I could give. I don't know why God allows that kind of suffering. I don't know why he allows for 26 families to go through the kind of Christmas that they're going to go through. I don't know, I don't know why he allows a guy to get as, as dark and as evil and disturbed as, as the person who went through that school on Friday. But I do know that Jesus came because of that stuff. That, that there's always been death, there's always been darkness, there's always been sorrow, and Jesus came to lift all that. He came to make that stuff go away, and it hasn't fully gone away yet. We're still living in this in-between time where he's come already, but we're waiting for him to come again, and we're crying out, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see that time of fulfillment, but we're just not there. I don't know why he waits. I don't know why it goes on as long as it does. I don't know why it gets as dark as it does for some people, but I do know that he came to fix the stuff that we saw broken on Friday. You know, we've, we, we have these pictures of Christmas where everything's supposed to be 
beautiful and fixed. And even in our manger scenes, you know, we have Joseph and Mary, and we have the wise men who are coming there, which they didn't come to the manger. They probably came within the first couple of years sometime. Um, but what we never put is, are some of the dark details that surrounded that first Christmas. And we, we listen to the news and we say, is there anything more foreign to Christmas than a massacre of children? But the truth is, in the Bible, at that first Christmas time, because of that first Christmas time, there was a massacre of children. Uh, listen to this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That's the dark world that Jesus stepped into, and that spirit of Herod is still in our world today. So things are dark, and we, we, we sometimes get these glimpses into really how dark they are like we did on Friday, but our hope is that when Jesus was born, all the sin, all the sorrow, all the death began to unravel, that there is coming a new day where Isaiah says this, in Isaiah 25, verse 8, it says, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. So our hope on our unresolved Christmases and our Christmases of sorrow is that he will fix this. He's made a huge down payment on it. It is going to be fixed. Uh, There's no guarantee that our circumstances are going to be right by December 25th. But there is a guarantee that we have a Savior. We have a Savior who loves us, who loves his creation, who feels the same kind of sorrow that we feel, who went through all the darkness that we go through, uh, who, who was not immune to our sufferings. The Bible says we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with what we're going through because he came. He was one of us. The Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. He's been there. He's experienced it. He knows how dark it is, and that's why he came. And there's light coming. It is coming at the end. He will come and make all things new. And, and there are times that we sorrow, but the Bible says we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. There's still something on the horizon. We're in this dark night, but the sun has started to rise. There's something coming. There's that new day coming, and that's what we've got. We don't have everything fixed now. We have a hope that it will be on that day. Now let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I wish I could say that Jesus is a quick fix for every problem and he's an instant satisfaction for every longing. But his word doesn't teach that. His word teaches that he's an ultimate fix. He's an ultimate satisfaction. That one day everything will be made new. I believe fully that one day everything sad will come untrue. I believe fully that he will return. That death will be swallowed up. but we don't necessarily have an answer for this Christmas other than you've got a Savior and he's good and when you cry out to him from prison, he'll respond. He'll be enough for you. So Christians, now might be a good time for us to just evaluate what are our expectations, either of our Christian lives or just of Christmas. Were the expectations that everything was going to be fixed by now? That everything was going to be better and and then we'd be happy and then we'd worship Jesus? 
Maybe we need to, to turn from those and to turn to a greater and truer expectation, expectation that Jesus is true, he's a savior, and he's enough. And one day he's coming again. We don't have every answer, but we do have the answer. We do have Christ. We do have a redeemer. And on a lonely or sick or heartbreaking Christmas, he will be enough. He's always enough. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, we're really glad that you're here. Um, you may have heard some phony messages about Christianity that if you accept Jesus, everything's going to be better right away. You know, you'll, you'll always feel full and content and every day will be better than the day before and, and you'll, it'll be nothing but growth and happiness. But the picture that the real Bible paints is sometimes a darker one than that, but it's just always true. And so we want to offer you something today that is not a quick fix for every longing and quick solution to every problem, but we want to offer you your Savior. I do have some promises and some guarantees. I know that when Jesus spoke, when he said something, it was as good as done. And he said this, he said, of all those who come to me, I won't lose one. Which means that if you recognize today that you're sinful, that life is dark, that you've rebelled against God, you recognize that you deserve his judgment, that you're not on good terms with him, you can come to him and he'll receive you. Now, the way you come to him is not by doing a lot of good things or, or joining a church or, or, or becoming religious and serving in a whole bunch of different ways. That's not the way that you come to Jesus. That's not what connects you to him. The way you come to Jesus is just by admitting that you can't on your own. Admitting the sin and the sorrow and the brokenness. And then believing the gospel message. The message that Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again and he did all that to pay the price for your sin. So the way you come to Jesus is, is by turning from sin and unbelief, by turning from any other attempt to save yourself or clean yourself or make yourself right with God and entrusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to make you right with God. And then you cry out to him and in the quietness of your heart, not in any special words, but just saying, God, I know my sinfulness. I know my rebellion. So I turn from my sin and I turn from unbelief. And Jesus, I turn to you. Please, Cleanse me of my sin. Forgive me. Let me believe in you. And he promises, if those aren't just the words that you say, but that's the cry of your heart, he receives you, he welcomes you, he makes you his. And he does guarantee you a real good future. He just doesn't give you the timeline. So whether resolution comes on December 25th or resolution comes in 100 years, it's coming. There's hope. And the place that we find peace as Christians is not in straightened out circumstances, but in a good Savior who's there and loves and listens. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're, you're like a good parent who doesn't lie to us. You don't, uh, you don't allow us to be disillusioned with false promises. But you just tell us the truth, even when it's a hard truth to hear. Lord, you, you promise to change our lives, but sometimes that change doesn't look the way we expect it to look. Lord, at times in, in our hearts and in our minds, you look awful. But Lord, let us believe that you're good. Let us know that you're wiser than we are, smarter than we are, more powerful than we are. At, at times, we don't understand it, but Lord, help us to trust in you, trust in your goodness, trust in your plan, and help us to look to your cross and recognize that it can't be that we have a God who is, who is awful. 
but we have a God of love who would send his son to die for us. Lord, strengthen our faith and help us to believe. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.